Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody. After a short break, I'm pleased to say once again, welcome back to 10% True. If you're watching this on YouTube, please excuse the dodgy COVID beard. It was shaved off for the next video, but uh, also please subscribe. And if you're already subscribed, then make sure you click that little bell icon next to the subscription button to make sure you get notified of new content. Speaking of which, my latest guest is squadron leader retired Chris Topo Topham, a retired RAF fighter pilot and someone whose name any Mildenhall Air Fate aficionado will recognise as the pilot who, in 1992, brought the F-117 stealth fighter over to the UK for the first time. My interview with Topo is divided into multiple parts, starting with his RAF flying career, flying Jaguars, and concluding with a detailed discussion of his exchange tour flying the stealth fighter, and an attack pilot's assessment of the enigmatic jet. I started by asking Topo how he got into the flying business. Enjoy. My dad was in the Air Force. He was a he was a navigator for many years. Uh, one of the first navigators on Canberra Vulcan Victor Valiant. Um, he ended up on the Vulcan uh, BCDU up at Finningley, and then after that he switched. It's a kind of long story, but there was a um, a very nasty accident um, with a Vulcan, I think, down in Gibraltar, um, or may even maybe the Boscombe down. Anyway, there was a nasty accident and. Um, Dad just took great exception to the fact that the pilots had ejector seats and the navigators didn't. So the pilots got out of the airplane and the navigators were killed. Um, and he never flew again after that. He Even when my son was born out in America, he wouldn't get on an airplane to come. He, he, he really um, threw him sideways. So he retrained and became an air traffic controller and was very, very successful as that. Um, so what, the first proper air traffic control job he had was at RAF Little Rissington over in the Cotswolds and um, that happened to be where the Red Arrows were based at the time and I would come I was away at boarding school and I would come back from school in the holidays particularly sort of Easter and summer holidays and the Red Arrows would be practicing overhead day after day after day when I was back at home and I kind of defy any 12 or 13 year old kid not to want to do that when you uh, when you're exposed to it every every day of the week. So that's that's what got me interested in the Air Force. Um, I had a, a weird sort of a county council grant to go to a very good school. Um, but when I was 16, I applied for an RAF scholarship to do the, or well, a cadetship, I suppose. So I got a, a scholarship thrown in, which was the um, 30 or 40, 30 hours of flying, I think in a Cessna. Uh, and then the university cadetship was tied in with that. So I went to Bristol University on an RAF cadetship. Um, 
uh, that that's how I got started, basically. Was there any, ever any um, doubt in your mind that it would be fast jets? There was. Um, I uh, once again, you, we've got plenty of time, so uh, it was the strangest thing and, and a, quite a salutary tale, really. Um, I went through the Cessna stuff and blasted through that very quickly. Um, did by all counts very well. Went solo very very quickly. Um, turned up at Bristol. Uh, went, obviously went up to Cranwell and got fitted for all the gear and stuff like that. And it was on. We were on Bulldogs at the time, and the instructors were all great. But I found that I was finding it really hard to concentrate, and uh, I got to a point after about a year where I was very aware that I was making excuses not to go and fly because it just wasn't going very well, and. So that was this was so I started the towards the end of seventy five. Um, so by the middle of seventy seven, I was going up to Cranwell to basically say um, I don't want to be a pilot anymore. I'd love to stay in the Air Force. Um, can I become an engineer? Something like that. It was about July seventy seven. Um, so I went up to Cranwell and uh, ended up having an interview with the Air Vice Marshal. Um, who turned out to be the dad of a couple of really good pals of mine now. Uh, and he said, look, I don't know what's going on here because your um, aptitude scores are all off the scale. Um, what's going on? And I, I said to him, I just find, you know, I, I get a headache. It's really good. He said, well, are you sure your helmet's the right size? So he sent me down to the safety equipment people and they found out that I had a helmet two sizes too small. I do have a big head. Um, and 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 that was it. It was so after half an hour or an hour of wearing the helmet, the the pressure was giving me a headache and stopping me being able to concentrate. So it was it was like a it was just like a veil coming off. So thereafter, um, I, I just it, things went in leaps and bounds. But as you can imagine, the instructors had been not particularly uh, not particularly unkind, but you know not the debriefs there hadn't gone very well so when i got to cranwell to do the um flying on the jet provost the whole way through i thought you know god you know i'm just waiting any minute here you know it's, it, it, i don't know how well it's going or how badly it's going but you know i'm just waiting for someone to say something and then we get to the end of the course and i won all the prizes at cranwell and i was absolutely gobsmacked so then we went and, and that was it was very good for my confidence but we're all i think most um most fast check guys you speak to you, there's, there's always that sort of self-doubt and and wanting to do better and whenever anything goes not quite right you're always looking at how it could have been your fault that type of thing so i went through valley had a great call the guys i flew with all the time were fantastic so we had great um spirit between us um it was a very successful course through training funny enough do you remember the um the fighter pilot program on tv okay so they were the um they were the course immediately behind us through flying training so when we got to uh valley they were on the other squadron and they were being followed through and if you remember only one of them ended up getting onto fast jets well our, our course we lost two people off the whole course of i guess 17 going through cranwell uh, everyone else ended up flying fast jet and the two guys we lost um there was a um, lovely guy called simon turner who 
got as far as group one, phase one. So he got as far as the advanced course, but he kept throwing up and they sent him off to, you know, make, try and make him sick in the machine so that, uh, so he had a, a hellish week going doing that. Um, he ended up going and flying helicopters because he just couldn't cope with the, the, with the style of flying uh, and was very successful as a helicopter pilot. And there was another guy who, who ended up going multi-engine. Um, but as I understand it, then retrained and, and ultimately ended up fast jet as well. So everyone got through. We we um, our course of seventeen became uh, a course of I think we must have been a course of nine or ten at Valley, and then the rest of the guys ended up um, on on the next course. So it it was all very successful. So we went through Valley. Um, things went very well, and I I, um, I I won a few prizes there as well, and, and that kind of set me up. I, I thought I'd, I'd always been told if you do as well as you can, you'll end up getting whatever fast jet you want. And at the end of Valley, they said, yeah, but you've done so well that we're going to send you off to be an instructor. So that, <laughs> so that, that game was a bit of a bombshell. Um, having said that, I absolutely loved it. I had two and a half years at Church Fenton, which was a lovely little station. Uh, great people that I was working with. Um, the students were great fun to fly with, and of course I was a similar age to most of them. So it was it was it's a great two and a half years, um, and thereafter I then went back in. So a quick blast through Valley, uh, of course at Chivener, and then off to fly Jaguars. So the RAF call them creamies, don't they? Because they're scooping the cream of the crop. Yeah. Or so, so that's so that's uh, yeah. In, in USAF parlance, a first assignment instructor pilot is this is the equivalent. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you were flying uh, hunters at that point, or hawks in the uh, a valley? Uh, no, that was hawk, hawks at that. Uh, no, no, at valley it was uh, hawks, and then at uh, Chibnall it was uh, hawk again. Okay. When I when I went back there, so when I first went through valley, uh, we were forty six course. So, uh, I guess that's probably about two years after the Nats finished there. There is you. You mentioned the the, the fighter pilot series. There is that now infamous clip um, of you know an interesting instructional technique of the student pilot being berated during the landing circuit. Um, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if that was carefully edited or if that was real, but um, and it's a bit of a sidebar. But was that your experience as a student or as an instructor? <laughs> if, if if you confess to it as an instructor, then that would be interesting. But but as a student, for sure. No, no. No, as a as a as a student, having so that was shown when I was an instructor, and I think I appeared in in very briefly in one program because it, it showed one of the Met briefings at Valley, and you know it had uh, it had a bunch of my pals in there. Um, but I remember watching it and thinking, none of the joy of flying is coming through from this program at all. I, I thought it was uh, it's on YouTube as well, all six episodes, and I watched them again uh, last year. And I had the same impression, you know, it, 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 those guys just felt like they were under the knife the whole time. Um, and, and that wasn't my experience in any way, shape or form. Um, we just had a, we just had a great time all the way through flying training. And then as an instructor, um, there was a variety of people. There was one guy who who shall remain nameless. And this is the funniest thing I think I'd ever heard as an instructor. So he was flying with uh, with another guy who shall remain nameless, a student, and it was his allocated student. So he was teaching him circuits, and he came into the crew room having landed from a flight. He said, "Right, I'm, this guy's going to be chopped." And we said, "Well, what's wrong, mate?" And he goes, "Well, absolutely useless. He just he just can't 
get that final approach right and he ends up you know diving in towards the um short of the runway and he just he's just not getting it so well, you know we're, we're all trying to help so he said well, so what's going on there? he said well he said so we've come around finals and i'm saying to him look what are you doing what do you do? he said look you point at the i can't remember which hand it was he said but you you point at the runway with your left hand and you point at the uh, and you sort out the speed with your right hand something like that he said so, so just do that and the, and the student goes like that literally points at it at which point the aeroplane goes and bunts towards the ground and the instructor has to take over and pull it away. And I said, so, so what do you get from that? He said, well, he's just useless. I said, no, no. His problem is he's not trimming. So he's coming down finals. He's slowed down. He's not trimmed. So he's holding enormous force on the stick. And when you come to point and the aeroplane dives. So the the instructor had no idea what the problem was for the student and to, to say. so there were weird things went on i think the the standard was fairly variable do, do you think i mean we are now completely off on a tangent but but do you think the disparity then between the chop rate in your class being very low and the chop rate in the class the other class being much higher is that to do with the the filming process or was it to do with the, the group of instructors Ooh. they had my guess would be it'd be a combination of three things. I think uh, we all our course were all ex university graduates. That little bit older and that little bit of extra maturity really helps. I think. Um, secondly, we had a lot of instructors who were really enthusiastic. They were all they they'd gone through at a time when there was hardly anybody getting onto fast jet, and they had all virtually all had volunteers. So they were all ex um, Victor uh, tanker pilots and. Hercules and that type of thing. Um, they'd all ended up there because there simply were no places for them on the fast jet squadrons. But they'd all um, been told that if they did well uh, as a flying instructor, that was their route back to fast jet. And to their credit, almost all of them got back. Two of, these, two of my instructors ended up going on to uh, Harrier. Uh, a couple, so they, they, they all ended up doing really well out of it. And they had that enthusiasm, um, w- which was infectious, really. So I loved it. I can't speak for the the other class. I, it, it was just all very different. So I think there's an element of perhaps the students were a bit immature, um, and perhaps because we'd all been to university, so we'd all done the cadetship, so we'd all been through that very intense aptitude test. So perhaps there was an element of the of the seeding there as well. Um, yeah. So, so you you do two two years as a creamy then. Um, how do you end up then in Jaguars? Because there is this. Um, well, I guess there's two streams, aren't there? You can go air defence or you can go ground attack with the Royal Air Force. I don't know if that's how it was back in, yeah. in sort of seventy seven or so. How, how did you end up in Jaguars and not Harriers then? Because that's another um, sort of a truism, isn't it? That the the best guys go to Harriers or maybe the Harrier pilots just say that. Um, it could have been any one of a number of things. Um, I did a couple of trips towards the end of my time, which didn't go as well as they could have done. Um, no good reason for it. I remember I, and I did them both with the same guy. It was, an, it was an exchange guy. And whether I'd misunderstood what he was saying. So I, I don't know if it was that or I, because none of us went Harrier. No one on my course or the course before. So it's quite possible the Harrier force was just full. I, I really don't know. It was a, We're talking nine, uh, uh, 83, 84 now. So it was a slightly weird time in the Air Force. 
um, there was not that much flying going on. So it was, uh, it, it was a, it was a slightly weird time. I, I, so I did the, I did the course. I got onto Jaguars, went up to Lossiemouth and did the, did the course at Lossiemouth on Jags, uh, which once again went well. And then they said, okay, there's no jobs for anyone at the moment. So they just sent us off. I went and did a computer course and parachute jump into Studland Bay and just all sorts of things just to kill the time. And then round about December 84, um, so almost three months after I'd done my last flight, um, got a message saying, you need you back at Lossiemouth. So I went back to Lossie and uh, said, we're going to, we're taking an airplane over to, it was with the boss and said, we're taking an airplane over to Bruggen. They, they want to, they want one of our two seaters. So we're going to go and swap it out. So I thought no more of it went over there and um, we dropped off at 14 squadron, had a long chat with the guys there. Um, or met in the bar afterwards, got back to Lossy Mouth with the boss. And he said, right, they're offering you a job as they, they need one more pilot. Um, do you want to go and do it? And there the, the were no other jobs. So I, I just leapt at the chance. Fantastic. So that was how I ended up on, on uh, there. And I was, I was the Air Force's very last single seat strike qualified pilot, as it turns out, because there were no more people going onto the Jaguar Force House in Germany. Um, the the tornado was just about to start taking over. So where QRA would normally have been done, I guess, I don't really know, I guess with four or five people, um, by the time I did it, there was only one, there was just me. Um, I, I had someone shadowing me for the first day that I went and did it. But then there's just me in, you know, in, uh, in the bunker that was set up for many people um, with one airplane with a nuke sitting on it out in a, out in a house. <laughs> Had you been eyeing up? So, I mean, you, you you've gone through this process, and so you've got quite a long a long time to be looking at what's happening operationally, notwithstanding there not being much flying. But you, you've got Phantom, Tornado, um, Harrier, um, Jaguar. Um, was Hunter still flying at the time? I don't know. But you've got a couple of different types of fast jets. Uh, you've got the air defense mission, the ground attack mission. So during your time as an instructor, were you looking at any of those things and saying, that's where I want to be, that's where I want to go? Were you, were you agnostic towards uh, towards it? I was very keen to go Harrier or Jaguar. I, I didn't really mind which. That was uh, I, I, Ground attack always appealed to me. And uh, so that was, that was my preference. And I, I don't even remember now whether we got asked whether we had a preference when we were Chivner, but uh, that certainly would have been my that would have been my choice. Yeah. What was the the Jaguar like to fly then? Um, you, 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 again, there's, a, there's uh, there are the jokes abound about lack of thrust and uh, curvature of the Earth and takeoff runs and that kind of thing. But what was it really like? Yeah, well, it it, it was a it was a very good precursor to the the um, stealth fighter, really, because they're both relatively underpowered compared to other airplanes. I think a lot of the Jaguar's bad press was because it came in to replace the Phantom, which was massively overthrusted. So the people who came off the Phantom end up flying the Jaguar and, and, you know, I guess think it was massively underpowered. But you've got a very small airplane with camouflage um, and it didn't need a lot more thrust. If you had a lot more thrust, it would burn a lot more fuel and wouldn't go as wouldn't go for as long. So I, I, there's a, I, I think they got it pretty much right. You had to handle it fairly carefully. It wouldn't have done particularly well in a dogfight, um, although you know it depends on to some extent on the skill of the pilot. But um, it was an amazingly capable aeroplane, and 
just jumping forward to the Gulf War and the run-up to the Gulf War, um, it got a, a it got an amazing midlife complete refit and update because it did so well on on that deployment. So the Gulf War, um, we can talk about that in a moment. So so my my Jaguar career basically was uh, almost a year out at Bruggen until the tornadoes took over. Uh, and it was a very sad day when we went and stood there when they put a, a pole up the arse of a Jaguar and stuck it there as a gate guard at Bruggen. That was that seemed really weird. And it was quite ironic then many years later for them to be retiring tornado squadrons and for the Jaguars to be to be carrying on going. So that was that was Bruggen. Um, and I then went to Coltishall on on uh, 41 squadron to fly recce Jaguars uh, and loved that as a job. And uh, at the end of that tour, I then went off to be on the staff of TLP, Tactical Leadership Programme, um, which was based up at uh, Jeva in North Germany at the time, but just about to move down to Belgium. So we ran one course at Jeva, and then there was this weird sort of hiatus um, where everything moved. And while the physical move was going on, they'd been very kind back at 41 score and said, look, whenever, you, whenever you've got time off, you're welcome to come back and fly. And I, so I was a sort of supernumerary pilot on 41. And then we had, uh, so we moved to Florent in Belgium to the old cruise missile site. And TLP is a fairly high profile thing. It's, it's sort of like the, the European equivalent of Top Gun, I guess. Um, so very good courses, generally two pilots from each of a number of different squadrons get together and learn how to operate together in, in big formations um, and interoperability and uh, operating with other members of NATO. So a lot of, a lot of benefits of the courses. Um, but the problem at Florent was, and, and one of the problems with NATO is I guess there are whatever, 13 or 14 signatories to the, um, the memorandum of understanding, which was the, the document, the sort of our, our working document. Uh, and it had to go around all the different countries and get signed off before we could get access to the million pounds of funding that each nation had put in. And it kept getting to like country number 12 and they'd make a small change to it. So then it had to go around everybody again. So I did a year and a half at TLP and we still hadn't got the funding. So we started off in three buildings at Florent, three beautiful buildings. Uh, with basically no money. And as they ran out of heating fuel, we had to shut them down. So by the time I left, we were down to, we were down to one building where they said, yeah, no, the funding will be through here soon. Um, we had a computer, uh, we had a printer, and we had a incredibly expensive um, machine, which had a, I guess it had maybe a Canon camera in or something like that. And it was for converting slides to digital imagery. Now, bear in mind, we're talking here 88, which is still fairly early on for computers, I guess. Um, so none of these things talk to each other. Um, so they, it, was, it was all unusable. The, the computer would turn on and fire up, but it wouldn't talk to the printer and it wouldn't talk to that um, weird scanner thing. So we paid, I think, somehow we got $500 and we got two guys to come up from Ramstein, two computer experts to fire up the computer so that at least we could we could do stuff on on computer um and, and print it out and they went away and said no it can't be done so i got um i got a book and taught myself computers and got the thing working uh, about about a week later I did about 16 hours a day just doing this in the meantime 
so about eight hours of the day we're working on computer. The other eight hours of the day, I volunteered to update the this memorandum of understanding, which had been uh, was originally based at Yeager. It's basically our, our operating manual to convert it to a Floren operating manual. Uh, but because the computer wasn't working, I had to do it all on on a typewriter. And of course, you know, making uh, and, and we had a one of those old Ronio machines. It was it was like stepping back in time. Uh, so we got that working, and then uh, the next difficulty was that because we were now operating out of Floren, we were using different low flying areas. And we had to get permission to use those, and that was all tied up with a memorandum of understanding. So the bottom line is, in that year and a half, we only ran one course at Floren, and that course was ground school only, no flying because we couldn't get permission to do it. So I spent probably 10 months of that year back at Coltishall just flying Jaguars as supernumerary. I did more flying in that year than I had in any of the years that I'd been on the squadron because I was I was no longer a deputy flight commander having to do that type of stuff. I was, I was just flying. So it was a, an amazing year. The, the mission of the Jaguar then in, in Germany was what? In Germany was strike. Um, we uh, we had a whole series of uh, potential targets, uh, which we were which we would study, so we'd be intimately in- acquainted with them. And uh, I, I get I don't really I don't know or whether I can't remember, but on I guess day one of the war, we'd have gone and taken out those various sites, um, and those weren't necessarily going to be done with tactical nukes or anything like that. They were just however we were going to take them out. It may well have been. I mean, the, thinking about the attack profiles, they probably were. That it was probably planned for the worst possible case. So we were. I think the attack profiles were, you know, pitch up, loose a loose a nuke and, and run away. Um, so that was the that was the sort of transition to war um, stance of, of the Jaguar. But yes, it was it was basically going to go and take out a bunch of targets. I suppose where I'm sort of going in my mind is whether or not you sort of, prior to getting to the F-117, you're you know, tactically operating in a sort of singleton mindset um, where you're going to go off in your Jaguar, not part of a formation, or you're going to be a recce pilot, go off and not part of a formation, and, and whether or not that, that sort of was anything um, that influenced your the decision to send you to the to 117. I don't think so. Um I, I never found out who the other guys being considered for the 117 were, um, but they certainly wouldn't have all been from from the, a, a sort of recce type background. And bear in mind, the recce was only part of our job, and we would we would be doing four ship, six ship, eight ship formations regularly, um, because there's only so much recce you can do, and the and you need to keep your hand in with all of those types of things. So we would go and do you know we do air combat, air to air refueling, all sorts of the the, the full spectrum of of ground attack type stuff, and in fact, we got a we got an amazing deal with. Uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, so, our in transition to war for Forty One Squadron, our job was to go and deploy up to Bardifoss in North Norway to protect that northern flank. Uh, so, one of the one of the scenarios was that the Russians would come charging down, and we were there basically to take out a bunch of bridges and, and protect that part of Norway. Um, and we got a visit one day from, um, I guess, Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones from the SAS. And the gist of the conversation was that they had this gadget, which um, they wanted to be able to use. And it was a, it was a laser target, target designator. 
And what they wanted to be able to do was to go up in peacetime, um, have these things pointing at uh, the ends of bridges in Norway, such that if things all kicked off in a hurry, we would be able to go and take out these bridges using these remote laser designators. And the way the remote laser designators worked, well, we had this um, weird little gadget, which we called an oodle box, because it would go, you press the button, it would go like that. You would be transmitting at the same time. So you would, um, you would fly in at speed, you'd pitch up to whatever, 35, 40 degrees, you'd be pressing the oodle thing, you'd release as for a normal um, slick bomb, to, to send it four or five miles before impacting. And then, as I recall, you then you had to wait a certain amount of time, maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds or so, until the bomb was going over the apex. And then you'd press this button, which was coded so that it would it would oodle to this, this remote designator. That would then fire the laser, and the bomb would pick up the laser signal and home in and take out the target. Um, brilliant idea, very simple. and uh, the great thing about it was that to be able to do that, the SAS needed us to practice. So they supplied us with a lot of laser-guided bombs uh, to go and practice this thing, and it, and it worked fantastically. So we got um, we got a lot of that type of weaponry to to use from from the SAS, which was a which was a, a very nice bonus. So yes, we did a lot of ground attack stuff as well as as well as the wrecking. One of the most interesting things that I did, um, a chap called um, Andy Morris uh, was my um, flight commander, and he was instrumental in setting up the night vision goggle flying on the Jaguar. Uh, night vision goggle flying on a Jaguar, um, bear in mind it was all done at low levels, was relatively tense because there's no autopilot. So it's it's for you to avoid pylons and, and all those things that stick up out the ground, basically, and the ground. And this was uh, Gen 3 goggles. So you've got a, a, a sort of greeny, blacky, vaguely white screen image you're looking at, just like an, just like an old like a oscilloscope or something. Um, obviously three-dimensional because you've got the, the, um, the goggles on, but a uh, fairly limited field of view. Um, and certain, a, a small number of us were trained to do this. And then we were rolling this out. So we would get Harrier pilots coming to be shown how to do low-level night vision goggle flying. And it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life because it, it was almost like playing a video game. The, the Jaguar at low level, when it's not um, very windy, is incredibly smooth. And it was just like sitting in a seat playing a video game because you're not looking at the world. You're looking at a at a photo, you know, a, a computer screen. And and you had this feeling that, you know, it, 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 well, it just flew into the ground it would just be a reset and game over and you know start again it was the strangest thing um but it gave us a, a huge capability and then andy I'm, I'm sure it was andy's suggestion when we were going to do one of our deployments in um january time up to Bardifoss, he said well let's take the nvgs and see how it is up there so we took the goggles up with us so we were um obviously at that time of that time of the year it was dark a lot of the time um, and you really you never got full sunlight really it would it was it would only get to dusk uh, sort of um twilight um but with the goggles on it meant we could go out a little bit earlier than we normally did but um the whole the whole thing up there is you you'd have these uh, military exercises and one team would be the good guys and one team would be the bad guys and whoever we were up against were the bad guys anyway uh, so you you never knew if you were red or 
blue, um, it didn't really matter. But all we knew was that we were up against the army. So the task for us, the, the recce task for us had been historically that we would go out, we would do a line search along roads where we'd been told the army were somewhere and we'd go and try and find them. And you'd go and do this and you'd wait until you know, the sun was starting to, oh, sorry, the, the, until it was starting to brighten up, not the sun really. Um, and you'd go and see what you could and you would, wouldn't really see very much. But if you thought you'd seen something, you could press a little marker and it would put something on the film. And the, the film was, uh, as well as um, normal uh, visual film, there was also infrared film that ran all the way through the flight. So if you had these flags there, the, the, the RIC, the reconnaissance guys, they'd develop the film and then they'd go to those markers first to see if they could see anything. And then they'd look for the whole thing. And it was never particularly successful. So anyway, we got with these NVGs uh, and we went and did these line searches. And all of a sudden, with the night vision goggles, which are working on infrared, the, so the army have, uh, and bear in mind, it's like minus 40 out there. So the army have moved at night when no one can see them under cover of darkness. And they bury themselves about 20 or 20 yards maybe into the uh, into the tree line so that no one can see them. And then they're sitting there, but it's minus 40. So they have their engines blasting away. So I went and did this line search. And with the goggles, you can see all these vehicles as great big, you know, white markers. So I just hit the markers we went along. We get back, we give the film into the rig, they process it, they come up with it, they give out all the various targets, and we go and bomb the shit out of them. We, 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 you know, the um, supposed on film bombing the shit out of them. And the, it was very weird because I think the army thought that they had a mole who was giving away these <laughs> positions. It was, it was all very, it was all very weird. But yes, it was a, a weird corollary of, of doing the night vision goggles stuff. It had, it had those uh, that extra use. You mentioned um, the Gulf War. Did, did you go to the Gulf War then? So, um, so I was uh, out in Belgium uh, on the staff of TLP, and then the chance of the stealth fighter thing came up. And in between, so I had a I had an option to leave the Air Force after twelve years, which I'd been going to take up. Um, and then the chance to do the the stealth fighter thing came up, and I thought, you know, okay, I'm I'm going to go for that. But because I'd already started the um, the exam thing, um, and I'd, I'd done a whole bunch of exams and the instrument rating uh, for getting my commercial licenses, um, when the one seventeen thing came up, I said, "Okay, I have to uh, I have to carry on this because otherwise I'm going to end up spending a lot of money. Whereas if I if I can do just these last few exams, then um, then at least I have the license rather than having to start all over again." if there's this six month gap or more. Um, so that was that was part of the deal. And they said, yes, okay, you know, that'll be fine. We, we, you can do that. So um, with these things, you, you don't just get offered it, uh, you get offered it. And the Air Force knew I was already choosing to leave, but they said, look, we, we think there may be this thing you might be interested in. Um, but prior to that, one of the things they'd been offering me was a flight commander job on, on Sixth Squadron when I was getting promoted. and uh, that the, what they said was that job was no longer available. So if I chose to cancel my decision to leave the Air Force at, at my 12-year point, then it was no longer a choice of potentially getting this job that they couldn't really tell me about or uh, Flight Commander 6 Squadron. It was now the alternative was some desk job at, at Uphaven. So it was a, I felt it was a really difficult decision to make. And 
uh, I asked my my postings officer. I said, "Well, who who makes this decision? Who chooses between these these various people?" And he said, "Look, I've you know I've seen your paperwork. On paper, you're the best candidate, but it, it, the decision has to be made, and it'll be made by um, Air Vice Marshal Sir John Thompson." And I said, "Okay, in that case, I'm going to go for it." Now I knew Sir John Thompson because he was he was the most amazing guy. He died ridiculously young of a heart attack, but he was a really talented pilot. He was he'd been qualified on both Jaguar and Harrier. And he came to us twice a year to fly the Jaguar. And because I was the squadron flying instructor, he would come and fly with me. Um, and he would turn up incredibly well prepared. He'd have done simulator stuff. He'd be word perfect on the checklists and stuff. So although he would be, uh, he'd be sitting on front and I'd be in the back uh, as a safety pilot, there was nothing I ever needed to do. Um, so we flew together a lot. So I knew him and, and I knew he knew who I was. And so I thought if anyone's going to make the choice the decision on this that's fine but i had a very nervous nerve-wracking month because um you know i just thought i can't believe i've been so stupid i've been fooled into into cancelling my decision to leave and now i'm just going to end up in some blimmin job in Upaven, which is the thing i treasure so for that for, for me ultimately to end up going there was uh, was an absolute um it, it was just fantastic so I got told that I was doing that, which meant that you, you can't go from one overseas job to another one. So I had to come back to, sorry, it's a, it's a very rambling say, how did I end up in at the Gulf War? So uh, you have to come back through a UK squadron before you can then go out to another one. So I came back to 41 squadron as just as a supernumerary guy. And I guess round about uh, end of July, August, I got a phone call from the boss. I was at home and he said, Chris, can you come in for a moment? Uh, um, and I said, is this anything to do with what I'm seeing on the telly? So what we'd just seen on the telly was Iraq invading Kuwait and all that stuff going on. He said, well, I'm not watching the telly, but probably. So I went in and he said, look, we, he said, each squadron, we're all going to send um, eight airplanes and 12 pilots. And we want to, uh, we, we've been told to send our, our you know, uh, the, the, the sort of the best 12 people we can. He said, so. If it was up to me, I would be sending you, but you're supernumerary, so I, so I, I can't necessarily do that. Um, and I said, well, boss, you know, I didn't join the Air Force to duck out of a conflict or anything. So if you're saying you would want to send me, then then of course I'll go. So it, it would be nice if it didn't affect my exchange tour, but you know, but there's the thing. So he said, yeah, okay, well, in that case, you're going. He said, but um, you're supernumerary, so you're going to be on a on a Hercules. Um, passengering out there. So I said, okay, that's fine. So that was, I guess, the Wednesday. Uh, we weren't quite sure where we were going. It, it, it was all a bit, a lot of it was a bit chaotic to be brutal. Um, so that was on a Wednesday. On the Saturday, we were going to deploy. And what it was going to be was uh, three, maybe it was only four airplanes per squadron. I think maybe four airplanes per squadron and Four airplanes for a squadron and 24 pilots or something like that. Um, so there were going to be three, four ships departing. And if it had been organized by 41 squadron, then we would have had four airplanes from 41 squadron and one of the airplanes from 54 squadrons of spare. And then the same thing for 54 squadron and, and finally a spare for the last one. But it was organized by six squadron. They said, no, OK, so you, Chris, and you, Eric, the other guy, you you two are going to be the spares for the um, for the whole thing. And if anyone breaks, 
you're going to be going. So, uh, so sorry, the, so the difference being that th there's a very good chance if someone breaks, someone who was still planning to go would be would be flying anyway. So um, we headed up there, and uh, I went up with my wife, and there was going to be a barbecue later on. I said, Look, I've got to go and sit in that airplane for a couple of hours, but then you know I'll be back for the barbecue and everything. And then about an hour later, um, my mate Graham Wright went up to her and said, uh, "That's Chris, and he's going." <laughs> and one of the airplanes had broken, so um, so I went, and uh, that's it. So taxiing out, we went to Cyprus. I guess I was maybe number three of a four ship or something. We go to Cyprus. Uh, we land there. No one's really quite sure where we're going after that. We had some arsehole from the SAS who came along and said that you know he happened to be there, gave us a briefing and said you know basically if you um, if you get caught, the best thing you can do with the gun that you're going to carry is shoot yourself because otherwise they'll you know cut your dick off and shove it in your mouth and just he he just gave us this horrendous briefing which was which was just the last thing that any of us wanted um so it was all quite sobering and i think and we were then heading off the next day but even then honestly we we didn't really know what was going on so we knew we were then going to oman because that had been approved so this was now so, so this was now sunday um we head off and they they rearranged things so now i'm leading i think the second four ship and we head off and we've got a tanker taking us down there. We've got an aircraft, which is loaded up with weaponry. Um, and we're heading off down uh, the Red Sea. And as we go down there, uh, following this tanker, sort of in and out of cloud a bit, uh, all of a sudden my radar warning receiver lights up with what looks like SAM-3. And I said, the guys, anyone else getting this? They're going, yeah. I said, well, did, are they friendly? What's going on here? And we didn't even know who was friendly and whether this was actually aggressive SAM-3 painting of the aircraft. So uh, that was a, that was a bit weird. Um, so we, we were a little bit underbriefed there. And then one of the guys, once again, who shall remain nameless, but he's a very good aviation artist, he was drifting off about three or four miles off left. So what's going on there? They said, oh, I'm struggling with number seven. <laughs> he, was, he was doing the telegraph crossword. Well, well, because no, once again, there's no autopilot, so you have you have to manually fly the whole thing. But it was a you know it was a long old drive down. It was the second of one of these um, you know following the tank because we'd already done four or five hours, five hours down to Cyprus already. Um, and the other thing was going out of culture. They never really got the hang of this, but they give you a packed lunch, and it's things like. Um, grated cheese sandwich. So you're flying the airplane. You've got a box. You open it up and it's just stiff. And, and we and so we go down to Oman, and uh, we can talk about that as much as you want. But um, the bottom line was we end up in Oman. Um, uh, one one thing to, to so we're we're not we're whatever forty years after the Second World War. Uh, you'd think technology has moved on. So we are. In thumb rate, we've got aircraft on QRA. Uh, I can't remember how many, maybe four, probably four. Um, we're practicing low level flying all the time, but we've still got these four airplanes on SRA to go. And um, as you probably know, you've got a missile belt um, between Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and with Patriot sitting in there and other missile systems. And you've got your transponder which is the thing to keep you safe so they you transpond a secret code which is changed every 12 hours and so if you're transponding the right thing 
they're not going to shoot at you when you come back. If your transponder goes wrong, then there's a thing called minimum risk routing. And what it is, they will suppress certain sites and it will be a sort of zigzag route. And what they know is if you're following that zigzag route, then you're friendly because no one's going to fall on it by, by accident. Um, however, we're not getting the minimum risk routing. And we, we're contacting headquarters and saying we're not getting the mineral resolution. They said, oh, yeah, well, well uh, we're sending it out. So we don't know what's going on. And we go to the F-15E squadron, who are also at thumb rate, and say, are you getting the mineral resolution? So, yeah. So, well, can we have it? We say, no, because it's US eyes only. So, but, no, can't have it. So we're sitting there, and we would have to launch, if we get told to launch, without any of the minimum risk routing which is of some extent. Anyway, it took us about two days to find out what it was. Um, you, you maybe don't remember, but modems, the broadband is now fast, but we used to use modems back then. And they were 2,400 board modems. Um, so it would take about 20 minutes to get a, a 500 kilobit thing through. Um, but when you put encryption on top of that, it takes a lot longer. So what they had was... Uh, um, faxes that they were sending through secure faxes using um, encryption and it was something like a 26 page document which was taking just over an hour to send out and they were sending it to 30 different places and they only had one thing to send it so the bottom six places were falling off the end and were never getting it because there was only 24 hours in a day and it was taking too long to send out so we weren't getting the minimum risk routing because they only had one machine to send it out with. Um, so that was one concern. We weren't getting that much intel. So we were all crowded around the, the Army Liaison Officer's um, shortwave radio, listening to the BBC Home Service to find out what was going on. And the final staggering thing about that was we discovered that, or we believed that the Iraqis had the Magic 3 missile. And we knew all about Magic 2, but we didn't know anything about Magic 3. So uh, one Monday morning, we called back to uh, strike command to speak to the intel guys to say look uh, what is this can you send us through the information and it wasn't me i didn't make the call but it went something like uh, you know okay no answer so truth the operator can i speak to so and so uh, yeah we'll try it no answer there okay can we speak to anyone in the intel uh, we don't think there's anyone in so what do you mean it's a bank holiday so we're out there on effectively on a war setting and there's a bank holder in the UK, so HQ Strike Command aren't in. And that was just mind-blowing to me. So it was all a bit Heath Robinson. Having said that, the training we were doing was amazing. And uh, we didn't know if it was going to be a low war, ultra-low level, or, or medium-level war. So we were training for both. Um, and I had six weeks out there um, before coming back home. And just the, the, the final little bit of that was at about week two, I suddenly realized that I had two exams still to do. Or, or no, so it wasn't even two exams. It was, it, was, it was two modules that I had to reset from the tech exams. So the NAV exams had gone very well for the CAA thing. Uh, I, I, I breezed through those. So I really hadn't put in very much revision for the other one. So I failed two of them, propeller theory and something. Um, so I had to reset them, but then I got sent off to Oman. So it looked like I wouldn't be able to reset them. And also I had to do uh, my performance exam. So I saw the boss and we weren't allowed to make a phone call. I said, boss, I really, I have to phone the CAA and see what they do. So I, I spoke to a guy 
And he said, well, no, you know, you're just going to run out of time. And I said, but but it's sort of transition to war. There must be some sort of waiver that you can give me. Well, I don't think so. I said, well, can I speak to your boss? I spoke to this guy, and I'll always remember his name, Mr. Rudette. And I spoke to Mr. Rudette, and I said, look, what do you think? And he said, absolutely. Um, as long as you assure me that you'll do it as soon as you can when you get back, then uh, then that's fine. So that was a relief. Um, so I then, I then um, came back prior to heading out to America. This would have been August 1990, I think that's when the invasion happened. So, and the RAF responded quite quickly. That was August, so. to August September. So, yes, October, uh, beginning of October, I think I came back. Yeah. Can, can we can we explore a little bit the the question then over whether it was going to be an ultra low level war or, or a sort of medium altitude war? I think you know the yeah we, we we've seen what it ended up being and the the losses to the tornado force. Um, what was what was your view then? Because didn't wasn't there a Jaguar lost at low level in the run up to the war? There was yes, just after I went back home. Um, yeah, it was. We were um, we were flying the boss at the time was allowed to authorize us down to 100 feet msl and the word was you need to get comfortable flying as low as you can and so we were flying lower than that we were practicing and training um to fly as low as we uh, we could be comfortable and it takes a certain amount of time because the lower you fly the the more narrow your vision your vision gets until you know you get to the lowest you could possibly fly and you can't look sideways but that's of no use because now you can't protect your wingman so you have to find a height that you're comfortable at where you can still be checking behind your wingman looking you know well behind him to make sure that he's safe uh, and that was that was the training that we were primarily doing we didn't need to train the medium level stuff because that was that was our bread and butter really you know, we, we We've been doing that in the UK, but the the ultra low level stuff was what we were concentrating on. And the the Jaguar had a, a radio altimeter, a rad out, um, but but no yeah. terrain following radar, no no gizmo to help you see ahead. And... No, no, all all by hand, yeah. And uh, and the the moving map display, the ten sixty four update that we got of the moving map was better. It wasn't perfect, but um, the the guys were really very good at doing what they did, and we would. You'd expect, you know, you'd expect a guy to be over a target within one to two seconds of when he was supposed to be there. Otherwise, it was, you know, that wasn't good. What was again? What was the mission of the the units being depo- deployed to Thumrate? Then, um, what were they going to be doing? Uh, truthfully, I have no idea. None of us really knew. Um, we were there. The aircraft were loaded with um, thousand pound bombs. Some with um, some slick bombs which you would be lobbing at something from, from a distance away, and some with the retard bombs. Uh, and I, I can't remember. I think we had cluster bombs as well. I, I, I don't remember. But I think the um, the aircraft that were on... Um, let me think. I think the aircraft that were on uh, standby on QRA had a mixture of slick bombs and, and uh, high drag bombs. So it was just there for, for whatever tasking we got. We'd, we'd either get a target that we were going to lob bombs out from five miles away or a target we were going to fly over and, and drop stuff. And we'd, we would just do what we do. There were no pre-allocated targets. Because, of course, this was going to be, I guess this was going to be over, um, in the early days, was going to be over Q8, uh, if, if things got there. Or I think one of the concerns, you may remember, one of the concerns was that because they'd gone rushing through Q8, 
that the next thing was they, there was the danger they were going to come over the border into Saudi Arabia and take out the desalination plants, which would have you know brought Saudi Arabia to a halt because that's what all those people living there um, relied on. So I think that was that was kind of what we were there to guard against. Yeah, I think I think the strike eagle guys had the same view, which was they didn't they didn't necessarily have a mission; it was more of a deterrent and. Yeah. Um, they would just have to make it up as they went along if if anything kicked off. Sure. But it was, I mean, the, the, I think the, the, the point that we got, we started on ages ago when I was talking about, was we, we set off with 12 aeroplanes from um, Coltishall and we got all 12 aeroplanes to some rate via a stop in, um, in uh, Cyprus. And you could do that with the Jaguar. I could head off with four aeroplanes for a week from Coltishall go and fly around Norway doing the ample game where you check that air bases can refuel you, that they have the ammunition and stuff like that. So it's basically a, a NATO thing. Checking. You go and check all these places and we could get back and there'd be minor problems with the airplane. You know, our TACAN might not be working on this airplane or ILS on this one. But basically you could go away for a week and you'd expect to get all, all four airplanes back. And that was the big difference between the Jaguar and the Tornado, our perception, certainly, that I think the Tornadoes, there were two full squadrons at um, uh, in Cyprus at Akrotiri at the time because they were having a changeover. So I think they had something like 24 airplanes to choose from and they, they only got, I can't remember how many they got out to um, where did they go to? Dharan uh, of which I think three of them had concrete in the nose. So you know, it's, it, was, it was just when people realised that the Jaguar could do that that was when it was a sort of a bit of a, a, a an eye opener for people, and then once we got the the TL pod and were able to be doing laser designation and stuff, it it it, it basically gave the Jaguar a whole new lease of life. Did you ever get an answer to the the, the magic three question? Then I don't remember. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yes, we did. Yes, we did ultimately, but we we I don't recall whether they actually had it in the end or not. That was that was the thing. But as I say, I I only did six weeks out there because the exchange job was coming up, which they wanted me to carry on and do. I think there's, it, there's an awful lot of paperwork involved, and I think trying to switch someone else into it. Um, so I, I headed out at the end of October, and even then it was still, I think, the beginning of December before I could get up to the Tonopar test range, because permission, not from the, not from the military, but from the, uh, the Department of Defense, who own all that sort of nuclear area there so so it, there was an awful lot of paperwork had to had to have been done and, yeah just going back in time then you mentioned that you had the choice between leaving the royal air force and staying and and going on this exchange tour but you had said they hadn't told you much about it or they couldn't tell you much about it what was the the flow of no. information to you then what how did it how did it work i had a chat with a guy who wanted to know why i wanted to leave the air force and I was going to go and see him and, and have a face-to-face -face with him. But um, in the interim, there was, a, there was a honeymoon and I got back from the honeymoon and I was jet-lagged and my car was up in Aberdeen and I had to get back to Belgium. And I, I, I rang the guy and said, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it down there, but um, I'm happy to, I've sent you a two-page fax and I'm very happy to chat about it. Um, so he called me back. He said, okay, I've read the fax. He said, I'm, it, it was a whole load of reasons why I decided to leave after uh, at my 12-year point. And he said none of it was stuff that he hadn't heard before. Um, 
the Air Force is very slow to change. And a lot of the things that, that had just irked me over, over the years, he said, they, they will change, but it's, it's very slow. They said, it's a shame. He said, it's a, it's, a, it's a shame that you haven't come down here because there's actually a job that I think you would be suited for and that I think you would really want to do, but I can't talk about it over the phone. I said, well, I, I, I really don't think there's anything. He said, well, that's quite, quite an interesting sort of job. And I said, well, can you, can you tell me nothing about it? He said, I, I really can't over the phone. And I'd heard rumours that um, the chap called Graham Wardell had, was doing something fairly secret and that, and it might involve this this aeroplane and i said okay so is it is it some is it something near a town or is it in a desert and he said it's a bit of both and i said okay then i think i have an idea what you're talking about and actually you might have found something that i might be interested in and that was all i had to go on really and uh, uh yeah so so I, I said i'd go for it and uh, had a very tense month waiting to find out whether I was because there's always a they always choose I guess they choose from three candidates so um, I had to wait and find out what happened there so you didn't actually have to interview so all based on you know the the Air Vice Marshal's experience flying with you and your paperwork and what your squadron bosses had said about you that kind of thing no interview no interview and and yes basically i think that the form 5000 the sort of annual thing but mine was i think was quite good um and and also you have to be in the right there's a large element having to be in the right place at the right time so i was coming up to the end of a tour and they needed someone at, at that time so there there are i'm sure there are a whole load of far more qualified people oh, the, and the, the other criteria they wanted for some reason well that they wanted was an engineering degree which I had as well. So a lot of it was being in the right place at the right time with the right qualifications. So when did you find out for certain then what it was? What it was, I have a feeling my boss told me. So he got a... I certainly knew what it was by the time I got given the job. Um which was some six months before I, before I actually went out there. Um, but I had no idea, you know, I, I had no idea what it looked like or I didn't really know anything about it. Did you, did you get a handover from Graham then, from Graham Wardell? Yes, he, he we, we crossed over by about a month. So Graham um, hadn't done that long on, on the aeroplane because he, he really did go out there to fly the A7, first of all. I think he'd been a test pilot. I think he'd gone through um, Boston. And... Uh, went out and, and his cover story i think all the way through had been that he was flying the a7 um and that that was part of the the story uh, of this i think the first one or two aircraft that crashed they said it was a7s when when it wasn't um so yes graham graham had a slightly different sort of a experience to me yeah um so this was what date because so so this is early 1991 around about then that the conference no 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 this was uh this was late 90 so i i went to america around about the first of november i think i first went up to the test range round about the big probably roughly the first of december um i think it was about a six so maybe maybe the middle of december um went up to the test range and that was literally to go up and get my hand scanned for the hand scanner, um, get both hands scanned 
um, get maybe ID stuff like that. But it, but that was what it was going to be. And they said anything else needed? So I, I got flown up there, escorted the whole time. Anything else you want to do? I said, well, I quite like to see the aeroplane. We go, oh well, yeah, okay. So we went we went and had a look at the aeroplane, um, and then and then back down again. What what did you think of it? What was it like seeing it in the flesh for the first time? I couldn't believe it. I I um, I had no frame of reference to base it on. It it looked a bit like a spaceship, just very 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 spooky actually sitting there because they were all in individual shelters. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's slightly breathtaking. Did you you mentioned lots of paperwork and uh, I think Sandia own that that uh, range, don't they? They own, they own Tonopah. Sandia yeah. is part of the sort of the nuclear department of energy whatever it's called um did, yeah. did they have to put you through spe- special vetting to allow you not just to go on the site but to actually be part of the program it was a senior trend is yeah. that correct yeah so I, I there were a couple of interviews kicked in there uh with um yes yes they did um and the security clearance that i ended up with which as i say took a long time to come through was such that by the time I left Holloman, some three years later, um, there were documents in our squadron safe that only me and the base commander technically were allowed to look at. Very, very strange. <laughs> because just to explain to people then, so so when you when you started the exchange, uh, the aeroplane was based at Tonopah, um, yeah. and uh, by the time you finished, it had moved to Holloman Air Base in New Mexico. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so does that suggest they had sort of gradually declassified elements of the program, or the... that was exactly it? I mean, it was an incredibly expensive operation to to man Tonopah, um because we had you know sort of twenty four hour catering. We were all living up there. We were all flying up on a sort of Monday and back on a Friday. So you would generally be doing a four day week there and a, and a three day weekend. Were you living um, in Vegas? Living, living up there. Probably. Yeah. So, okay. So, so, so technically, yeah, living in Vegas, flying up from flying up from Nellis. We were we were parented by Nellis Air Force Base. Yeah. Okay. And, and did you take your wife with you? Was this a, an accompanied tour? Uh, to to Vegas. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she was she lived in Vegas, um, and then I was I was home for three days of the week and, and away for four. Was she able to? I mean, presumably you were able to tell her what you were doing, but at this point, because the airplane I think was revealed in eighty eight, eighty nine. I think they they should... uh, yes. Well. Uh, yeah, they. Um, it was just before my time. It was. It was. So they had a. Uh, th- this was quite remarkable. They had an unveiling at uh, Nellis, where they flew an aeroplane down and let the. Uh, whether it was the general public or certainly they let people see the aeroplane, and we had a, an aircrew driver called Ronnie, and she'd been. Uh, she'd been with the program the whole time. She was a civilian. She lived in Tonopah town. And she would come in. Her first job early in the afternoon was to pick up the first wave of pilots from the off-site um, accommodation. She'd drive us up to the base through the security. Um, she was then the aircrew driver. So if we needed to go to admin or back to accommodation or whatever, she, w- she was basically the driver. And then her last job in the evening was to drop the pilots for the first wave at their individual shelters. And then she, along with all the other um not correctly classified people had to be signed out beyond the post, you know, scanned out and past a certain distance before the aircraft shelter doors would be opened uh, and the aircraft would come out. And she'd been there since I, I think 1981. 
So it went down nine years. And she drove five and a half hours down to Nellis to get her first look at the aeroplane. That's, that's how good the security was. Wow. From, from your point of view then, um, how are you feeling about the exchange? I mean, is, do you have so many, do you have some ideas as to how it's going to work out, whether it's going to be enjoyable? Are you, is there trepidation? Uh, is this just business as usual? What's, what are the emotional aspects of doing something like this? Um, I was, so I was, I was thrilled to be going and doing it. Um, I had, I thought I've, I've met a lot of American pilots in my time and some of them have, have been excellent. Some of them have been not so great. And actually when we went out there just about that time, I think a, a B1 crashed doing a low level thing. And all of a sudden, uh, low level in America was having to be done at a thousand feet. Um, uh, above the ground and this to me this is a, a an example of the sort of lowest common denominator thing so because one airplane that's not really meant to be at low levels crashes at low level everyone gets pushed up so um so my my thoughts when i went out there was i thought not you're not i'm going to show them how it's done but i thought you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be in a position here where i'll be you know i'll i'll, I'll be able to hold my own for sure and I knew that they had Top Gun competitions, and I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll probably have a pretty good chance there. But yes, you know, I won it once or twice, but but the standard was fantastically high, um, and I, I recognised that as soon as I got out there. Everyone was so sharp, so focused. Um, so from my, even from meeting the other three guys who were on my my training course, um, I could tell that that you know they were something special. We all went down for two weeks down to actually down to Holloman to go and fly the T-38 um, because they'd come from, uh, I think the three of them had come from, uh, certainly two of them had come from A-10. So it was a, it was almost like a sort of mini Hawk course to make sure that everyone was up to, up to speed. And that was a, that was an incredibly enjoyable two weeks um, going and doing that stuff. And that was before we then went up to Holloman to start doing ground school and, uh, simulator stuff so yes um not really trepidation my only truthfully my only real concern was for um the wife that i'd newly married uh who when i'd married her i was expecting to be leaving the air force and i i never wanted to be married while i was in the air force because i felt like wives got messed around and, and I'd, I'd had to say to her when when the chance of this thing came up i'd said you know it's it's a um it's still the Air Force. You're going to be dragged to Vegas. Oh, yeah, but it's Vegas. Yeah, but, you know, you're going to be in Vegas. And I don't think she enjoyed it as much as I did. I don't think she liked the separation, um, being on her own. Um, I, I know the other wives were, were as helpful as they could be. Um, but and then we had my son, Alex, as well. So, you know, she went through sort of pregnancy and stuff. And, and a lot of that time, I was I was away and out the way. So, um, it, it, it was difficult for her as as I I thought it would be, but she was very upbeat and her parents were very upbeat. And, and I remember a conversation with with me saying, you know, that uh, you know, the plan was I was going to join, perhaps going to join BA. And they said, well, you haven't even got a job with BA, and you're giving up a, a really good job in the Air Force. And was, yeah. So, yeah, that was that was my only concern. And to some extent, that that came to be. Um, and sadly, we we split up about you know, five years after we got married. And I do wonder whether that would have happened if, if I 
left the Air Force when I was going to leave the Air Force. 